Hi, I'm Bob Harrington, and I'm excited to announce the third annual Going Back to the Heart of Cardiology in San Diego, California, December 3rd through 5th. The goal of the conference is to learn new skills and network with our peers. To register, visit medscape.org slash heartofcardio22. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds, Dan Ambender here. Welcome back to the Cardio Nerds Cardiac Critical Care Series, which is a multi-institutional collaboration made possible by contributions of fellow leads and expert faculty from several programs led by series co-chairs, Dr. Mark Belkin, Dr. Eunice Dugan, Dr. Karin Desai, and Dr. Yoav Karpachev. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. Relevant disclosures can be found in the episode show notes, and the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds without external bias. And with that, let's get nerdy. Welcome to another episode of the Cardio Nerds Cardiac Critical Care Series. So far, we've covered many of the most common forms of shock we've seen in the cardiac ICU, but one important etiology of shock is post-cardiotomy shock, i.e. cardiogenic shock after cardiac surgery. We are excited to collaborate with both a heart failure cardiac critical care physician and a cardiac surgeon for this episode. But first, I'm excited to introduce this episode's lead, Dr. Carly Fabrizio. Carly recently completed her Advanced Heart Failure and Transplant Cardiology Fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. She currently is an attending heart failure physician at Christiana Care Health System in Newark, Delaware. Her clinical and research interests lie in cardiogenic shock, mechanical circulatory support, and pulmonary hypertension. Welcome to the series, Carly. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me on for the post-cardiotomy shock episode. I'm thrilled to be a part of the Cardio Nerds Cardiac Critical Care series. I have the honor of introducing two of our faculty guests, Dr. Gavin Hickey, who is an advanced heart failure and transplant physician, and Dr. Dave Kazarowski, who is a cardiothoracic surgeon. I consider myself very fortunate to have worked with these two incredible physicians who have taught me so much during my training at UPMC. Dr. Gavin Hickey is the director of the Advanced Heart Failure, Transplant, and Pulmonary Hypertension Fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and also serves as the medical director of the Ventricular Assist Device Program. Dr. David Kazarowski is the Surgical Director for the Advanced Heart Failure Center at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and previously the Surgical Director of Cardiac Transplantation and Mechanical Circulatory Support at the University of Maryland. Thank you for inviting me, and thanks for the kind words, Carly. It's an honor to be on this podcast to talk about cardiogenic shock. Yes, thank you so much for the opportunity, and I look forward to our discussion. Dr. Kazarowski, Dr. Hickey, thank you so much for joining us. We are really excited to learn from you guys uh, over there at UPMC. And I just have to say this is very special for us cardiners because UPMC is a Healy Honorable program. We've been so fortunate to work with and learn from Dr. Katie Burlacher, the Cardiology Fellowship Program Director, who's been not just a Healy Honorable PD, but really a mentor to us from many vantage points. You know, She mentored us through getting a grant from the ACC to put together a series for diversity and inclusion and so many other projects and also our fit ambassador, Dr. Natalie Stokes from UPMC, who's a co-chair for the Cardio-OB series. And we're soon looking forward to be working with Dr. Jenna Skaronsky as a new FIT ambassador. So we've just been so blessed to learn from so many incredible people at UPMC. And this episode will continue that tradition. 
So first, I will mention that as we get into this topic, Cardio Nurse Podcasters have a wide range of learners who listen to this, spanning from medical students to faculty from multiple subspecialties, really anyone interested in the care of a cardiovascular patient. But not everyone may have dealt with patients with post-cardiotomy shock on a day-to-day basis. And so why don't we begin by setting the stage? Dr. Hickey, would you please walk us through what post-cardiotomy shock is and how do we diagnose that? Absolutely. So cardiogenic shock has frequently been defined differently in randomized clinical trials. Difficulty in coming up with a common definition, along with the heterogeneity of cardiogenic shock, are reasons we haven't been able to identify exactly which therapies may improve patient outcomes. Thankfully, we now have the Sky Shock Staging System to identify exactly where our patients fall in the cardiogenic shock pathway. A is at risk. B is beginning of shock, typified by hypotension or tachycardia without hyperperfusion. C is classic cardiogenic shock, where the patient has signs of hypoperfusion and end organ dysfunction. D is deteriorating on therapy. And E is extremis, typically in VTVF arrest, on VA ECMO, or unable to come off cardiac bypass. Using this new system, we can diagnose post-cardiotomy shock as patients who are undergoing cardiac surgery that develop hypotension and or tachycardia with hypoperfusion and end organ dysfunction. So it seems that there are many factors that can lead to post-cardiotomy shock, and it seems challenging to predict. And when you place a patient on cardiopulmonary bypass, and then you subsequently wean them from bypass, and then you're managing the post-operative period, whether they're on pump or not, it's pretty complex. And so if we're dealing with a patient on cardiopulmonary bypass, parts of the process include rewarming the patient, de-airing the cardiac chambers, ensuring a perfusing heart rhythm, confirming adequate ventilation and oxygenation, removing the intracardiac catheters and cannulas, and then slowly reducing the blood diverted to the cardiopulmonary bypass circuit and then returning it in small aliquots to the patient. So there's so much to monitor in this process. Dr. Kazarowski, much of our audience is not in the OR to see this careful dance take place. So to start, can you speak to any specific preoperative or intraoperative risk factors that make you more concerned a patient will develop postcardiotomy shock? Sure. There are really many factors that can lead to postcardiotomy shock. One of the major preoperative factors is a poor preoperative cardiac function, and that includes both right and left ventricular function. If a patient comes into the operating room in shock, they're more likely to come out in shock. This includes patients requiring inotropic support as well as mechanical support preoperatively. But even patients that are well compensated preoperatively can develop postcardiotomy shock if they have chronically poor ventricular function. There's a variety of intraoperative factors that can influence the development of postcardiotomy shock as well. Probably most notably would be a long cross clamp time and long cardiopulmonary bypass times, which can be required in more complex operations and increase the incidence of postcardiotomy shock. Inadequate myocardial protection, ventricular distension, and technical factors are things that we always worry about that contribute to postcardiotomy shock as well. Thanks, Dr. Kazarowski. It's very interesting, you know, um, specifically, as you mentioned, that a lot of the technical factors can be risk factors for postcardiotomy shock. And as many of our listeners are more on the medical side, not in the OR, you know, I think it'd be helpful, you know, as we're getting to wean a patient from bypass, can you walk our audience briefly through the steps and what being on cardiopulmonary bypass and in general going through cardiac surgery does to the patient's cardiovascular physiology? I think it'd be helpful to understand this as we think about managing patients in the immediate postoperative period. Yeah, certainly I can do that. So after the critical aspects of the operation are achieved and the aortic cross clamp is removed, the heart is allowed to reperfuse. If the heart's been ischemic for a considerable period of time, like after a heart transplant with a long ischemic time, for example, more time for reperfusion might be required. 
The lungs are generally reinflated. If pacing wires have not already been placed, they're generally placed at this point. This generally includes temporary pacing wires to pace the ventricle. Atrial pacing wires are often placed as well, particularly if the function of the heart is marginal to help with AV synchrony. So generally, a stable rhythm needs to be achieved. The heart's paced if necessary. The acid-base status and electrolytes, in particular potassium, are optimized. Once the heart is adequately de-aired, cardiopulmonary bypass is then gradually weaned. And specifically, the way that we do that is that the flow of the cardiopulmonary bypass circuit is gradually reduced, and more of the patient's blood volume is gradually allowed to pass through the heart and the lungs. Transesophageal echo is generally performed while we're weaning bypass. And once bypass has been completely weaned, the cannula is used to establish cardiopulmonary bypass are then removed and anticoagulation is reversed. The valvular function of the functional heart is generally assessed by TE. All the surgical sites are examined for hemostasis. And once that's confirmed, chest tubes are placed and we can begin to close the chest. Great. That was very helpful to kind of have walked through as, again, as we're not in the operating room very often. Dr. Ricky, is there anything from your standpoint on the medical side we're thinking about kind of directly post-operative care that you're concerned about that you hear about happening in the operating room or specific questions you might have to the surgical or surgical ICU team that may affect kind of your risk assessment of this patient for um, postcardiotomic shock? No, I think the T helps us look at, you know, overall function of the heart, you know, left and right ventricle, looking for any you know, valvular disease as well. So, you know, I think as Dave explained it, you know, he's pretty thorough in what we look for. Okay, great. Now let's move into a more specific example to think through the evaluation of patients prior to receiving them uh, from the OR into the Shulman ICU here at the CardioNerds Medical Center. So if we have a case here of a 58-year-old man who has a poorly controlled diabetic, has sleep apnea, obesity with a BMI of 37, and tobacco abuse, who presented initially with chest pain and was diagnosed with a non-ST elevation MI. He was brought to the cath lab, and he has noted to have multivessel coronary disease, and an intraaortic balloon pump is placed for coronary perfusion. So after a heart team discussion is had with the patient, the decision was made to surgically revascularize this patient. And his preoperative echo showed an ejection fraction of 35 to 40%, with a non-dilated left ventricle and no major valve lesions. Dr. Hickey, before proceeding to surgery, what are some of your thoughts and concerns going into the case that will affect your postoperative management in this patient? So I think we as a medical community focus so much on LV systolic function as the sign of cardiac function. If there's one takeaway from rotating on the cardiac ICU or in the heart failure service, is that the LV systolic function is only a minor piece of the cardiovascular puzzle. For example, We've got plenty of patients with preserved LV function that have severe dyspnea and are frequently readmitted with heart failure symptoms. This is typically a result of worsening pulmonary hypertension and subsequent RV dysfunction. The RV plays a major role in cardiac function. We have some patients with an LVEF of 10%, but they can function at a high level for many years when the RV is working well. Another consideration perioperatively is valvular function. For patients with severe MR, if the LVEF is 35%, What's the effective forward flow? It may only be 15 to 20%. So as we prepare patients for cardiac surgery, in truth, we need to be looking at the entire heart and obtain hemodynamics prior to going to the OR. If filling pressures are within goal and cardiac output and index are normal, the risk is going to be much lower for postcardiotomy shock. If the patient's on high levels of pharmacologic or mechanical support or the hemodynamics are deranged, more complications are going to occur. Once we assess that perioperative risk, we also need to think about what options we have for mechanical and pharmacological support postoperatively. 
a multidisciplinary discussion with the cardiac surgeon, heart failure team, cardiac anesthesia, and intensivist prior to going to the OR is incredibly valuable. Great. Thanks for that, Dr. Hickey. And really consistent with what Dr. Kaiserowski was saying in terms of uh, risk stratification for predicting post-cardiotomy shock. It is really what was their preoperative morbidity. So you said we're going to be thinking about their LV function, RV function, valvular function, and hemodynamic status in terms of thinking about how to best get them through surgery and managing them afterwards. So with that in mind, let's take a look at another patient and specifically think through the hemodynamic and clinical monitoring of patients as they leave the OR. So our second patient in the Shulman ward that we're going to be discussing is a 69-year-old man with a history of hypertension who had presented initially with nuanced heart failure with an LV ejection fraction of 20 to 25%, as well as severe functional mitral regurgitation. Coronary angiography revealed multivessel coronary artery disease, and he was noted to have significant myocardial viability on cardiac PET. He ultimately underwent on-pump cabbage with a mitral valvoring annual plasty. He arrives in the CICU with an intraortic balloon pump in place, and he's on epinephrine, norepinephrine, and vasopressin drips. Over the next few hours, his MVO2 continues to decline and lactic acid continues to rise despite increasing vasoactive support. Now, we know a lot of these patients come out of the OR on vasoactives for support. Doctors Kazarowski and Hickey, would you describe the clinical, laboratory, and hemodynamic parameters which help you determine whether vasoactive support alone will be enough versus when temporary MCS may be needed? Are the thresholds to initiate MCS different compared to some of the other patients we may have discussed in the series who are not within the context of postcardiotomy? Dr. Hickey, maybe we can start with you. So when looking at a patient like this, I want to get an assessment of the patient's overall perfusion. You can look at a variety of things, but I would start with basics like blood pressure, your output. I'd look at data from the PA catheter if available, including the cardiac index, the PA pressures, the CDP. And in addition to trending a mixed venous oxygen sat and a lactate, I'd measure serial blood gases with a particular focus on the pH, bicarbonate, and base deficit. If these measures suggest that the patient is worsening, I would try to optimize the ionotropic support. I'd favor using epinephrine within safe dosing limits and minimizing drugs that increase the afterload whenever possible. If there's adequate blood pressure, I'd consider milrinone. I'd try to up-titrate these agents within safe limits. If the patient has significant pulmonary hypertension, I might also consider using inhaled prostacycline or nitric oxide. I'd definitely try to correct any acidosis in addition. So if the patient's condition is worsening despite these measures, then I would consider escalating mechanical support. So I would say the only other parameter, you know, we think about in cardiogenic shock is cardiac power output and cardiac power index. I do think we try to use that, you know, when we're thinking about mechanical support, cutoffs such as a cardiac power output less than about 0.6 or a cardiac power index less than about 0.32. Those are, you know, a couple of key measures we also think about. Awesome. We always love talking hemodynamics here at Cardio Nerds and on the Cardiac Critical Care Series, and then me personally as well. So great to hear from both the surgeons and the cardiologists about the benefits of continuous hemodynamic monitoring with the PA catheter. We've talked a lot in the Cardiac Critical Care Series about right ventricular function and how it plays a critical role in our management of shock patients. And that's no different for patients leaving the operating room. We want to move on to a case that highlights this. Our third patient here is a 41-year-old woman with morbid obesity and uncontrolled diabetes. She's undergoing LVAD placement. Post-operally, she was maintained on epinephrine and milrinone drips. Over the next few hours, she developed worsening renal function with a decrease in urine output despite volume resuscitation, a drop in her mixed venous oxygen saturation, and a rise in her CVP to 25 millimeters mercury. When we place an LVAD, we're supporting the left ventricle. However, we often see dysfunction in the right ventricle in these patients. Dr. Ricky, post-operatively, how can we identify patients with RV failure, and when do you think about pulling the trigger to upgrade to right ventricular support? So most patients that require left-sided support by nature have underlying right-sided dysfunction as well. 
it's important preoperatively to know what degree of RV dysfunction a patient has. Parameters such as CVP, PAPI, CVP to wedge ratio have some association with RV dysfunction postoperatively, but none are perfect. Ultimately, RV failure can occur in any of these patients. We don't have great data on when or how to support the RV in VAD or cardiogenic shock in general. It's an area that definitely needs more focus. As far as when to pull the trigger exactly, I'm going to defer to Dave's expertise in that area. So Dr. Kazarowski, I'll ask you, when do you consider using RV mechanical support up front in the OR? And then what's different about how you assess RV dysfunction in the OR compared to someone who's in the ICU? Well, first, I really try to avoid that situation as much as possible by making every effort to ensure that the patients are optimized as much as possible prior to going into the OR for the procedure. That usually involves invasive monitoring and diuresis in the ICU prior to VAD if the RV is marginal at all pre-op. In some cases, we may use mechanical support, temporary mechanical support to optimize the patient and help with diuresis preoperatively. Once in the operating room, I make every effort to continue to try to optimize the RV. For example, it's possible to remove volume through hemoconcentration while on the cardiopulmonary bypass circuit to optimize the patient's volume status. Generally, I consider mechanical support in the operating room when medical therapy has been maximized and the patient still remains marginal, as measured by a number of things, including bad flows, cardiac index, mixed venous gases, and metabolic parameters. The OR is different from the ICU. In the OR, we have the advantage of TE to assess the RV function. If the chest is still open, you can look right at the RV and get a sense of its function and also the volume status of the patient. In addition, when we're in the operating room, anesthesia can make minute-to-minute changes very easily. Yeah, I mean, despite TE and TTE, I'm sure nothing matches looking straight at someone's RV and getting a sense of how it's functioning. Fortunately, we can't safely do that in the ICU on a regular basis. That was incredibly helpful. In previous in our cardiac critical care series, we've covered various forms of mechanical circulatory support, um, balloon pumps and Pella. ECMO, RBADS. Temporary MCS is often needed in postcardiomy shock, and we've touched upon that a little bit here already. As you said, the goal is to have patients optimized to avoid the need postoperatively, but still the need often arises. Dr. Kazarowski, are there certain patient characteristics or surgical considerations that will influence what type of MCS you will use postoperatively? For instance, does the type of surgery inform your choices of temporary MCS or anything like that? Well, when considering a mechanical support strategy for a patient, I think you first have to ask yourself, what is failing? Is it the right ventricle, the left ventricle, the lungs, or some combination of these things? Then you have to ask yourself what access you have, and then you can start to consider a strategy. So for example, if you have a patient in the OR with biventricular failure and hypoxemia who has peripheral vascular disease, you might want to consider central VA. If the patient has pure LV failure, but the right ventricle and the lungs are fine, you might want to consider some form of a temporary LVAD. That was a really great way to break it down. And we've talked a lot about post-cardiotomy shock and how to recognize and support these patients. But Dr. Hickey, what do you think can be done to potentially prevent post-cardiotomy shock or at least decrease the risk of post-cardiotomy shock going forward? So I think the key is good, optimized hemodynamic, hemodynamics going into the case. You know, frequently, Dr. Kazarowski and I will talk about RV going into an LVAD case. And oftentimes, we really want those CVPs in the single digits. So we need a really good hemodynamic evaluation and then a multidisciplinary discussion with cardiac anesthesia prior to the case. That's incredibly important. In high-risk cases, we can recommend tuning the patients up with a PA catheter. We diurese them to optimal hemodynamics and ensure the patient's adequately perfusing their end organs. Holding offending medications that could make the patient vasoplegic is also something we focus on. So ACE, ARB, ARNI, calcium channel blockers, even milrinone are all potential offenders. 
PA catheters are also a must for these patients intra and post-operatively, so we can fine-tune the pharmacologic and mechanical support. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for explaining. So, Dr. Hickey, if a patient in our CVICU continues to have markedly decreased systemic vascular resistance or vasoplegia coming out of the OR, are there medical agents that we can try just beyond vasoactives like norepinephrine and vasopressin? Well, I do believe that every pharmacologic and mechanical tool has a role. It's important to have an idea of the physiology of the patient when you're applying them. In the case of vasopressin, its use in cardiogenic shock and MI is pretty controversial. There are some studies showing worse outcomes in cardiogenic shock. However, it's typically used as a last-ditch effort in the sickest patients, leading to skewed data. If there are signs of vasoplegia in the OR, such as low SVR on one to two pressors, I do believe it has a role. We just haven't been able to sort that out objectively. Norepi and epi are really the first line for vasoplegia intraoperatively. It's tough to know at which dose they go from improving contractility and vascular resistance to purely causing vasoconstriction and potentially harming the patient. Once they hit that threshold, mechanical support with temporary percutaneous ventricular assist device, ECMO, or use of vasopressin may be necessary. I truly wish I had all the answers on this, and I think we're getting closer to those answers, but I think we're still in a gray area when it comes to best strategy. Yeah, thanks for going over that. I feel like vasoplegia is one of the most challenging syndromes to take care of because you just feel like a lot of the strategies that we normally reach for just are not effective. But, you know, kind of dialing back to what we've been talking about, we've discussed so many different causes of post-cardiotomy shock, as well as strategies to address reversible shock. But sometimes we do ask our surgical colleagues to operate on patients with poor cardiovascular reserve to begin with, for whom post-cardiotomy shock may not be entirely reversible. And again, just to reiterate that a lot of our post-cardiotomy shock outcomes really do depend on the pre-operative cardiovascular reserve. So say, for example, like we talked about earlier, a patient who needs cabbage and mitral valve repair who has an EF of 20% and severe MR at baseline. So Dr. Hickey, what is the role of advanced therapies evaluation preoperatively as a bailout strategy as we send these patients for operative planning? Yeah, it's really never a good idea to paint your surgeon in the corner with a you know really challenging patient like that without you know having a discussion about what options are available. You know, I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but it's really important to think about preoperatively. You know, have a multidisciplinary discussion about what the options are for the patient. So, in our difficult patients, someone like this, for example, we would bring them to our heart transplant selection committee. And we'd have our like heart failure attendings, cardiac surgeons, intensivists, cardiac anesthesiologists, social work, palliative care. Everyone can kind of weigh in on exactly what that patient may or may not be a candidate for. In some cases, VAT or transplant may actually be a better strategy than putting this, you know, high-risk patient through a cardiac surgery. It makes a lot of sense that we have a patient that's high risk to definitely consider, you know, the more advanced heart failure options before putting them through that high-risk surgery. And great to hear that that kind of goes through that team-based care that I think a lot of advanced heart failure programs have. Doctors Hickey and Kazarowski, can you speak to how team-based care may help better treat these patients and what physicians should be involved in decision-making both pre- and post-operatively? Well, I think joint decision-making can be really helpful in achieving optimal outcomes for these patients. Working together to choose the right therapeutic modality optimize the patient's pre-procedure, and then support them as necessary is generally in the best interest of the patient. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think involving the intensivist team, the palliative care team to go over, you know, patient's goals and what they would or not, would not go through. I think that's really important to understand. And that way the whole team can really care for the patient appropriately after they come out of the OR. And finally, Dr. Hickey and Dr. Kazarowski, we end every episode here on Cardio Nerds. And in this series in particular, by asking what makes your heart flutter about caring after the critically ill. I think caring for patients in critical cardiogenic shock is extremely challenging, but the success is extremely rewarding. 
Yeah, thanks to, you know, Cardio Nerds and Carly for having us on. You know, cardiogenic shock remains one of the highest mortality conditions in all of medicine. We now have the system practices and technology to start making a dent. My passion is to enhance education, push for earlier recognition and shock team activation, have multidisciplinary discussions up front and ensure standardized care to reduce mortality. I do think we're at the precipice of making real progress on the hashtag war on shock. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for, you know, just explaining why you love the care of a patient with cardiogenic shock in this context. And it's really inspiring because this discussion has been so special. Not only do we get to learn simultaneously both from an advanced heart failure and transplant attending, but also a cardiothoracic surgeon, but not just that, but two people who work together so closely. And before we started recording, before we hit the record button, we were just taking a moment to celebrate the incredible outcomes at UPMC Heart Transplant Center with uh, zero mortality for the 2021 calendar year, which is just an incredible uh, achievement and, and definitely something to be celebrated. But that comes, I'm sure, from a lot of planning, a lot of teamwork, a lot of resources and dedication. We hear this buzzword of the heart team approach, when that we hear that, we read about that in guidelines now. But, but it really, it's, it's such a real concept when we talk about taking care of people and saving the lives of people who just get this new lease on life with a brand new heart. So maybe for one more question, I'd love to ask you to just what has it been like working with each other personally to, you know, at this hashtag war on cardiovascular disease in stewarding patients through this incredibly life-altering experience of heart transplant together there at UPMC? Well, I can start. I got to say, I think it's been great. You know, as I said, caring for patients in cardiogenic shock can be extremely challenging. So it's great to have people that are really dedicated to helping take care of those patients around you. And Gavin and the other heart failure cardiologists here at UPMC are extremely talented, extremely dedicated, smart people that I really enjoy being around. So for me, it's been, it's just been fantastic. And, you know, it's tough when we don't succeed, but when we see the patients get through, it's just really extremely rewarding. And it's great to be able to enjoy that as a team. Yeah, we're lucky to represent UPMC here on this podcast, but really, you know, we're a small number of the teams and people that are really taking care of these patients. Everything from, you know, in the operating room, perfusionists, cardiac anesthesiologists, the bioengineers that we have available to us, oftentimes needing our intensivists postoperatively imaging. The nurses in the CTICU, you know, they're fantastic. We have inpatient APPs and nurses, you know, on the floors that are taking care of these patients, even in current situations with very tough staffing. My colleagues in heart failure, Dave's colleagues in surgery, we have a cardiogenic shock team that meets monthly. As part of that, we've got, you know, all of the intensivists from the CCU and CTICU, you know, over 40 members, our interventionalists are on there. You know, so we just have, I think, a really great team. And, you know, we talk about multidisciplinary teams and our transplant teams, you know, and really it's about how do we get, you know, standardized care for all of these patients, you know, from the time they hit our hospital to the time they leave. So it's been a real pleasure working with Dave and also with the rest of the team. That's great to hear. This has been such a fun podcast to do. I'm currently finishing up my advanced heart failure year right now. And during the advanced heart failure training, or as it sounds like at UPMC, we have very close collaboration with the surgeons and terms of rounding with them, lots of meetings with them. And I've learned a ton, not only about post-cardiotomy shock, but about kind of cardiovascular care from a different training point, different viewpoint. And this kind of entire talk has been very inspiring as I'm planning my next steps into faculty as an advanced heart failure doctor. So thank you both for coming on and doing this. This has been a credibly educated conversation. We covered preoperative risk, postoperative risk intraoperative risk, how to mitigate some of the complications, how to help kind of frame decision-making when we move between vasoactives, mechanical, circulatory support. This has truly been great. So thank you both, Dr. Kazarowski, Dr. Hickey, for coming on. Thank you, Carly, for putting this together. Thanks, everyone. Mark, you're going to do great things. And, you know, it's been a pleasure being on here. 
you know, it's a lot of fun, actually. We give a lot of talks and we don't get the chance to really, you know, interact like this too much and really get it out to a larger audience. So, you know, this is pretty cool. And I love what you guys are doing. Thank you. I agree. Personally, my first card nerds has been great to get to meet people just like the three of you and hopefully again, get to meet in person, maybe ISHLT or other places and kind of talk more about what we all kind of love doing, cardiology and transplant and stuff. Thanks so much for having us. 